Amen. This morning we continue in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4, verse 12. And right expectations are really important. They are extremely important, right? So many of our disappointments, our frustrations in life are due to the fact that we were expecting something else. We were expecting something different. And then reality sets in and we're bummed or we're mad, frustrated. And it's that way with so much in life, right? It's that way with relationships. Our expectations were something. Reality set in. It's that way with new jobs. It's that way with parenting. It's that way with vehicles. It's that way with houses. Pretty much everything. And so this morning, Peter is going to align our expectations up with God's purpose and God's plan in chapter 4. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Dear friends... Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome For those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So Peter here is going to help us with our expectation adjustments in four ways. First, he's going to say, don't be surprised. Second, he's going to say, rather rejoice. Third, because judgment begins in the household of God. And then fourth, therefore, commit yourself to God and continue to do good. So first, don't be surprised. Verse 12, look at it again. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He addresses them as dear friends, as loved ones, as beloved. Peter cares for this church. He wants them equipped. He wants them prepared. He wants our expectations right. And so he says, don't be surprised. In other words, you should know trials are coming. We should expect troubles. We should expect trials. This world is fallen. We are sinful. It's all broken. Shalom is lost. Not all is how it's supposed to be. Great evangelist George Whitfield had his expectations right. He graduated from Oxford. Here's what he said. I'm now about to take orders and my degree and go into the world. What will become of me? I know not. All I can say is I look for perpetual conflicts and struggles in this life and hope for no other peace, but only a cross while on this side of eternity. He had his expectations right as he entered the adult world. The fact that we are surprised by trials and fiery ordeals actually shows how far we've gone astray from the biblical worldview. It's counter. I admit, I'm preaching to myself. It is counter to modern sensibilities. Suffering and trial as normal. And then we have false messages all over the place. I mean, Christian bookstores, Christian television, 
the so-called prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all that says, if you really have faith, you'll be healthy and wealthy and happy. And if you're suffering, it's out of the Lord's will. The Lord's will is never for his people to suffer. And if you are suffering, it's because you lack faith. Well, that's garbage. It's taught by wolves like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, and most of the people you'll find on Christian television. And often, more often than not, they're having a handheld mic. Be wary. The elders do not want you reading those types of people or listening to that type of preaching. It is just absolutely contrary to what we've seen again and again in 1 Peter and what we will see again and again in, in all of Scripture. And sadly, America is importing that heresy all over the world. But what does God say? He says, don't be surprised. You should expect it. You should expect trials and suffering. Do you think the Apostle Paul had strong faith? Was he wealthy and healthy and happy clappy? Let's read 2 Corinthians 11 verse 23. I am more, Paul says, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and told, toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul had probably as strong as faith as one could imagine. Look what his life was characterized by. It's not just Paul. It's really every faithful saint. Let me read to you from the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 36 says, some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just many of faith. It was our Lord. Our Lord's the one who said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Later, he says, I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what our Lord says about this life. You will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world, he says in John 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life. Is that everyone in here? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So don't be surprised when it comes. Look at our king. Look at the one we follow. If they persecuted him, they'll persecute us. For him, it was suffering, then glory. We've got to keep that in mind. We've seen Peter lay it out for us many times. This life is largely suffering, largely trial, just like it was for the life of Jesus. But on the other side of the grave, because of the resurrection, glory comes. True health, true wealth true joy because it's resurrection joy but for now it's suffering and so Peter says expect them don't be surprised about trials in fact if your faith is not causing you any sort of trial if your faith is not causing you any sort of discomfort it's always good for us to ask ourselves maybe we're not following the Lord 
If my faith is not causing me any sort of discomfort and the Bible says what it says, maybe I'm being a little bit too worldly. Maybe I'm not truly sold out for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That's a warning. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. So we need as Christians, faithful followers of Christ, just to get used to the fact there are going to be some people that don't like us and in fact persecute us. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Fiery. We don't like that adjective, do we? We prefer buttery, (laughs) fluffy, soothing ordeal, maybe comfy ordeal. But Peter says the fiery ordeal. This life is hard. If we're following Jesus, it is hard, but it is worth it. And notice he said there that these fiery ordeals come in order to test us. They come into our lives to test our faith. Are we genuine believers? Will trials cause us to seek the Lord or will trials turn us away from the Lord? We'll say more about that in a minute, but for now, Peter just wants you to not be surprised. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. For Christians, the trials are normal. If there were no trials, that would be strange. But this is the normal Christian life, so don't be surprised. Adjust your expectations. The second adjustment is don't be surprised, rather rejoice. Look at verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Trials come, response should be rejoice. Rejoice because you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. When his glory is revealed, again, suffering, then glory. We ought to rejoice when we're suffering because we know we're on the road to glory. So Romans chapter 8 says, we're we're children. If we're children, we're heirs. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. We're sharing in the suffering of Christ. And so we can rejoice because we're walking with our Lord. Look at the next verse there. 4.14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, the name of Christ can offend. It's always very fascinating to me how the name of Christ can offend. And also, I'm always curious when there's Christian leaders in public places, will they pray in Jesus' name or not? It's always waiting. Will they actually pray in a Christian way? John Hagee blew his opportunity the other day uh, in Israel. The name of Jesus offends. It does. And if you've experienced, though, persecution because of Jesus, Peter says you're blessed. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That you're blessed when you're insulted because of the name of Christ? Of course, Peter's just repeating the words of his Lord, right? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Expect it. Rejoice in it. Or if you're in 1 Peter, turn back a few pages to James. James is right before 1 Peter. These very important verses in the first chapter of James. James chapter 1 verse 2. 
consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's what we just read in Romans chapter 5. Trials, if we will persevere, will lead to hope. So the Lord sends them in order to test us, testing our faith, which will produce perseverance. That's how we can rejoice. We know that through it, if we will follow the Lord, we can rejoice because we know our faith will be stronger on the other end of it, right? And some of you who suffered deeply know that, right? You can rejoice. And the goal is then to be on this side of it, to be able to rejoice because we know God is for me. Who can be against me? If something comes at me, it's going to make me stronger if I will continue to lean into the Lord. And I can be joyful. You notice all the joy words Peter used there in chapter 4. Look, verse 13. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. Then later he says, if you suffer as a Christian, you can praise God. You're blessed. And it says the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It means he's with you, at work in you. We've got to remember this. We're blessed, especially when suffering for Christ. Not when we suffer for our own problems, right? He says that there in verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. If it's on you, that's on you. If you're suffering because of your own sin, that's, that's you. But if it's because of Christ, he says, do not be ashamed. That'll be the temptation, won't it? You've been there. Even just conversations, knowing that you'll be ridiculed and so you back up. Or maybe the Lord lays a little softball right before you to share the gospel and you, you're ashamed. That's the temptation. And Peter knew temptation very well, right? Tempted three times, and Luke tells us that as Peter, on that third time, as he denied his Lord, the Lord looked at him. And I think that set Peter on a new trajectory. Then you have the resurrection and the ascension, and after that, Peter is unashamed, isn't he? That's what we see in the first chapters of Acts. Something changed, and it was the resurrection of Jesus, so much so that they get beaten by the Jewish leaders, and what do they say? They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. They were unashamed. They just love him so much that they're thankful to be associated with him, unashamed. And Peter, even till his dying breath, he died crucified upside down because of his faith. And many in the early church have done the same, unashamed. Ignatius of Antioch in the second century, in his letter to the Romans, early church leader, he knew his fate. And here's what he said. He says, bring on the fire. Bring on the cross, bring on the hordes of wild animals. Let them wrench my bones out of socket and mangle my limbs and grind up my whole body. Bring on all the hideous tortures from the devil. Just let me get to Jesus Christ. Nothing on this wide earth matters to me anymore. The kingdoms of this world are entirely meaningless. I am at the point where I would rather die for Jesus then rule over the whole earth. He alone is the one I seek, the one who died for us. It is Jesus that I long for, the one who for our sake rose again from the dead. Ignatius was torn apart by wild animals for the amusement of the Romans in the infamous Colosseum. Justin Martyr, second century as well, whipped, beheaded. 
Perpetua in the late second century was tortured. She also was in the arena for the amusement of the Romans. And the way she was to die, many had died actually before her in the arena. And there was this massive, fierce heifer that would come and maul her to death. And she gets knocked down the first time and her hair got all, fell down. And she gets up and she puts her hair back up. She finds her pen and she puts her hair back up. Because in that in culture, you took your hair down to mourn. And Perpetua wanted the audience to know this is not a time of mourning. This is a time of rejoicing. And she puts her hair back up and is mauled again and eventually ends up being, have a sword at her heart and she takes the blade for this little trembling Roman guard and puts it at her throat. And she dies unashamed for the cause of Christ. Origen, the second century and the third century, tortured to death. Also in the second century, Polycarp. He was asked by the Romans to reject Christ and worshiped the Roman emperor. And he said, 80 and six years I've served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And they said, all you have to do is say away with the atheists. Of course, the Romans called the Christians atheists because Christians only worshiped the Lord instead of all the false gods. And so they told Polycarp, if you'll just say away with the atheists, we'll let you go. And he looks over to the Romans and says, away with the atheists. And he's burned at the stake for his faith. Unashamed. As Tertullian said, another early church father, the leg doesn't feel the chain when the mind is in heaven. They were unashamed. Brothers and sisters, we have many, many examples. Peter has given us Jesus. We know, we know of Peter himself. We know of church history. When we're insulted, when we suffer, let us not be ashamed. Let us rejoice. Third, he says, don't be surprised, but rejoice because it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Look there at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here we have a surprising turn. So far, it's been on persecution from those who don't follow Jesus. And now we learn that it's actually the judgment of God. And it's on God's household first. And of course, God's household all throughout the Old Testament is the temple. Peter already showed us that, right? Look over the next page at chapter 2, verse 5. Peter said about the church, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the house of God. We are the temple as the church. And judgment begins with us, this verse says. Begins with God's household. But this is really important to understand. As a believer, if you've genuinely trusted Jesus Christ, there is never wrath for the believer. That's been taken care of in the cross of Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no wrath for the child of God. But there is discipline for those who are children of God. And if you're in Christ, you're God's child. He loves you. Therefore, he will discipline you. So we should expect it. God's loving discipline is different than his wrath, but it comes and it's painful. We should expect it. Again, Hebrews is right before James. If you want to flip back a few pages. The Hebrews chapter 12. Look at 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? That's encouraging to me because every time I go through a trial, I forget this. So he asked him, have you forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the, dis- the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone who undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters. If there's no discipline taking place in our lives, we're illegitimate. But if we're legitimate, discipline will come. Verse 9, moreover... We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. This is the end goal, brothers and sisters. God cares about us being formed to Jesus Christ and he will do whatever it takes to get us there. He will discipline us so that we might share in holiness. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Can I get an amen? But painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. God disciplines those whom he loves. He will prune us like a plant that he wants to bear fruit. Just a couple of weeks ago, Alicia, she's got this plant, this thing is called a peace lily, and her grandmother gave it to her several years ago when one of our children were being born, I can't recall which, three or four years, and it was getting, it looked pretty rough, and so she begins pruning it, and she's like, man, I think I just killed this thing, because there's lots of dead leaves, but wouldn't you know it, a week later, you've got these fresh blooms and fresh leaves. It's the way the Lord works. He prunes us, and it's painful, but it's needed for our growth. God wastes no pain. He uses it, and he uses it to purify our faith. So we sing, when we go through fiery trials, when through fiery trials our pathway lies, his grace all-sufficient will be our supply. The flame will not hurt us. He only designs our dross to consume and our gold to refine. We will go through fiery trials. But the flame won't hurt us. It's just purifying us. It's just removing the dross. God uses suffering to bring us to a point where we would not go if it were not for the suffering. Paul Tripp calls it uncomfortable grace. Fire refines. So stand firm. And as he said in verse 12, these come in order to test us. Trials will push you in one of two directions, either towards the Lord or away from the Lord. Think of Job. Job comes, they lose everything, right? They lose their family, they lose everything they have. What does Job say? He turns to the Lord. And he had questions and he had pain, but he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What did his wife do? She went away from the Lord and she said, curse God and die. And so the question is, how will we respond? Not if, but when the trial comes. We may not be so bold as to say, curse God and die, but what will we do? Will we whine and mope and be full of self-pity and worry? Become apathetic, become angry? 
Probably every person in here knows someone who used to say they followed the Lord that is no longer following the Lord. And in my limited experience, nine out of ten times, it's because something hard came. And instead of turning to the Lord, they went away from the Lord. They got angry. They bailed. Life wasn't drawn up the way they thought God should draw it up, and they were no longer interested. And we should expect this. Jesus told us in his famous parable of the soils, he said that the seed is planted, but when trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. So trials test us. It's the Lord's discipline. He starts at the household of God. And our faith will either produce perseverance or apostasy if it's not true. And so when it comes, turn to him, not away from him. The true flavor of a tea bag comes forth when the heat gets turned up. The same sun melts wax and hardens clay. The same sun, same heat. The difference is the internal makeup. So trials test us. And it's hard. He says that. That's why he quotes Proverbs 11 and says, If the righteous are saved with difficulty, what will become of the unrighteous? If it's difficult for us to persevere, those who don't know the Lord don't have a chance. And notice how he describes those who don't follow Jesus. He says they are those who do not obey the gospel of God. It's God's gospel and it is to be obeyed. The gospel is the news that Jesus has come and had a perfect life, died the death we deserved, was raised from the dead, and now is exalted as Lord. And as Lord, that summons obedience, faith and repentance towards him. And so for those who don't obey the gospel, judgment is sure and certain. The world makes it difficult for us. And so, Christian, will you have the resolve, the perseverance, the stamina? May your faith be proven genuine when it comes. That's how he started, isn't it? Flip back to 1 Peter 1. Really, our passage is just an unpacking of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that, here's the purpose of these trials, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We can rejoice in the goal then of the trials that our faith would be found true. That our faith would be purified. That's the goal. True faith will persevere. As someone has said, faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. But if we have true faith, it'll persevere through the trial. We'll turn to the Lord instead of away from the Lord. And so Peter urges us to be ready. Don't be surprised. Rather rejoice because God's at work. And then notice how he closes there. Fourthly, in verse 19, therefore commit to God and do good. Verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So then, because of all this, those who suffer, and notice he says according to God's will. Again, some teach that it's never God's will that you would suffer. I would say that they just can't read one page of the Bible without being bumped up against that false teaching. It is according to God's will. It is not outside the will of God. Because at the end of the day, nothing is, right? Proverbs 16 tells us that even the dice is rolled and its decision is from the Lord. 
He's in control. Again, we see this from the book of Job. Job gives the Lord credit. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives the Lord credit for the trial. And the author there of Job in chapter 1 verse 22 says, what does he say? He says, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. God wants us to know. Job was right. The Lord did give and the Lord did take away. It's according to God's will. He's not abandoning us though. He's at work in us. He is with us. We've got to have this right. We've got to have a right view of suffering before it comes. It's much too late when it comes for us to think clearly. And so we want to have this vaccine in thinking what's going on or we'll just think God's punishing us wrongly. We'll think he's left us. We'll be confused emotionally. We might think God's abandoned us. We might become bitter, anxious, angry. But we suffer, and we suffer according to the will of God. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher, put it. He said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hands, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity, end quote. Because we know he's good. We know he's for us. We know he's our father. And ultimately, he's in control. He's not being surprised. We've just learned he's at work in us through it. He says, those who suffer should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Trust him. When the trial comes, trust him. He's the all-powerful and he knows what he's doing and he's good. It's really easy to entrust ourselves to God when everything's going the way we would design it, right? My life is going exactly how I would write it up and so it's easy to entrust myself to God. A wrench comes in and we're then all of a sudden tested. Will we then entrust ourselves to God? Will we approve of what God is doing in our lives? But he knows what he's doing and he's for you. And if you knew all that he knows, you would choose the exact lot that you currently have. So trust him and trust yourself to him. This is the battle, isn't it? I love the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're threatened by Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. They say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. What a model for us. They committed themselves to their faithful creator, didn't they? They were confident. They weren't confident in what they thought. They weren't confident in their own limited understanding of what they thought God might do. They were confident in him, though. There's no name it, claim it here, no false words of positivity spoken here. They just trusted him. He's able, but if not, we're going to remain faithful. Trust God. He knows what's best for you. He's our faithful creator. He knows what he's doing. Again, Charles Spurgeon, I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. He is at work in you and through you. And so we just have to trust him even when it's hard, even when we don't see. We trust in the dark what we know to be true in the light. There's a book by Ann Voskamp called 1,000 Gifts, and she shares how she struggled with losing her sister when she was little, and she struggled. And in the end, she realized that it boiled down to whether or not she trusted God. She writes, God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, 
Will God withhold anything we need? It's an allusion to Romans 8.32. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems best and right? He's already given us the incomprehensible. I love the hymn, It Is Well. I've got a frame of the lyrics in my study, written 150 years ago. And many of you know that it was written by a man, Horatius Spafford. And he lost everything in the Chicago fire of 1871. And just a couple of years later, lost all four of his daughters. And he writes, when peace like a river. Well, so when things are great, when peace like a river is ours, everything is good. Or when sorrow like sea billows roll. Either way, he says, whatever my lot, he says, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though he should attack, though he should strike, we will be controlled by the blessed assurance that Jesus loves us, even though we're sinners. Christ has regarded our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our soul. He's taken our sin. He can be trusted. Our sin, not in part, but the whole. Nailed it to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. So Lord, haste the day. Bring it in. When our faith will be sighed and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll, the trump will resound and the Lord will descend. Even so, it is well with our soul. Peter says, trust the Lord. Resolve to trust him even in the difficult day. And so you can say and so you can sing, it is well, entrust yourselves in the day of trial to your faithful creator. But it's not what all he says, though, right? He says, also, continue to do good. Persevere in doing good. Galatians 6, let us not become weary in doing good. So keep serving the Lord. Keep serving the church. Continue to obey. When the trial comes, the worst thing you can do is unplug and disconnect. Keep pursuing and obeying King Jesus. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, but rejoice at the fire ordeal because God's at work in his church and so you can trust him and keep on keeping on.